I think we need to take a more active role, uh, be more involved with the patient, take total care of these patients. Uh, it's not just an oncologist domain or a surgeon's domain. We Good morning, good evening, or good afternoon. Welcome to Endocast. I'm your host, Tony Ray. This is episode 11 with our physician guest, Simon Lowe from Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California, talking to us about the evolution of pancreas cancer diagnosis. Endocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians, presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Endocast listeners, this afternoon, I have the honor of introducing a pioneer and a legend in the interventional endoscopy space, Dr. Simon Lowe. Simon, how are you? Good, good. I don't know what that legend means. <laughs> well, that's why we're doing the interview, because we're going to find okay. out. So uh, for those of you that don't know Dr. Lowe, he is the director of both the pancreaticobiliary and director of the endoscopy program at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. In fact, we are fresh off the heels of the 27th Cedar sinai pancreaticobiliary Symposium. And for those of you that haven't attended that course, it's perhaps the gold standard in pancreaticobiliary symposiums. Dr. Lowe, quick question on your symposium. 27 years, a long time. Yes. How, how has it changed since the first year? I was a lot younger at that time. Um, and uh, certainly it was a lot cheaper to run the meeting. Um, much of it's also it's because we have gotten longer, bigger, and with a lot more contents. So um, when we started out, it was a pure sit-down lecture, uh, question-and-answer type format. Then you, we evolved into workshops, and then hands-on, and then live demonstrations, and the days got longer. We now have several different components in addition to the pancreatobiliary program. So, um, you know, it's very complex, and but it's more fun as we evolve. Yeah, I've been several years, and I, I can say without question, uh, the course is first class all around. Thank you. Uh, late January every yes. year, uh, for those of you that are interested in coming out to Los Angeles when it's cold back east, it's usually beautiful out here in L.A., so I'm sure Dr. Lowe would love to see you out here. Yeah, we'll try to promise no rains at that time. We'll promise, but you, it doesn't rain a whole lot in L.A., no. so there's a very good <laughs> chance. Uh, so... Before we get into the content of this particular podcast, which is on pancreas cancer diagnosis, I usually like to ask our guests, what are some of your passions outside of GI and medicine? What do you do in, in your spare time? Well, I don't really have much life. I certainly didn't have much life when I was younger. Um, and as you know, uh, interventional field is a lot of work, hard work, and long hours. So... Um, you spend a lot of time at work. So now I'm trying to spend a little more time personally with my family. I have grandchildren now and also attend to the house. We do a lot more yard uh, gardening type of thing. So, and then travel a little bit. That's, that's it. Nothing really exciting like golfing. It's not spending time with family <laughs> is exciting and it's yes. important. So I'm happy to hear you're doing more of that. So, uh, again, before we get into 
the actual content. Uh, this particular podcast is super uh, near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. I actually lost my dad uh, to pancreas cancer. Sorry about, about that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, about 10 years ago, he lost a, a short battle with pancreas cancer. So I'm hoping, uh, as a result of this podcast, that um, potentially just one patient is, is helped or impacted as a result of this. Uh, and with that said, we'll get started. Good. Tell me. So first question I have for you, advanced imaging modalities. Obviously, MRI and CT has gotten better over the years. How have the imaging technologies changed the way that you work up patients that are suspected with pancreas cancer? Um, hmm. Good question. Uh, as you know, we don't really have anything that is non-invasive like a blood test or urine test or something to make a diagnosis. And the symptoms are very nonspecific. So you really have to uh, relied a lot on something objective. And w- one of the best advances has been CT and MRI. Um, and I think that, um, that that's our go-to testing uh, whenever we think that there's a problem, uh, especially CT scans, which are easier to read for most of the non-radiologists. Uh, so um, CT is frequently the start. Um, and but you have to use um, with conscious study, otherwise it's really not that useful at all. Uh, so when the CT is or C- MRI has been performed, then you have probably have most of the easier to observe cases uh, identified in these exams. Um, then you have probably about 25% of the patients who you suspect having cancer and these studies are negative, then you have to rely on a lot of different things. Time is one important thing. Um, and invasive studies is other, such as EUS or ELCP. Um, on very rare occasions, we do operation these days. Uh, that's really almost never done anymore. So that's a big shift. Uh, when I was a medical student at some major medical center back east, uh, that was when CT was in its first and second generation. At that time, if we suspect a older gentleman who's losing weight and have lose no appetite and n- something very nonspecific, we would go as far as exploring the patient um, and not even trusting CT then. Uh, so today is really a lot easier on our patients. Uh, they don't have to go through all this trauma before they even get to a bad diagnosis um, given by by the doctor. Which leads me to my next question on EUS. So patients had their workup with imaging modalities, and now they've moved on to the EUS. What markers tell you that this patient is metastatic and you should proceed to palliative care? What are you looking for? Well, first of all, a lot of the metastatic, obvious metastatic pancreatic cancer is already known by CT or MRI. Uh, but let's assume that you don't know that when you go in. Let's say a patient who came in on a weekend with obstructive jaundice, you have to palliate anyway. Uh, then the EUS, um, we look for things that are very obvious would be uh, liver metastases, um, m- multiple lesions in the liver, uh, and 
something that surround the major vessels like the uh, aorta, the superior mesenteric artery, or the celiac artery. If any of these arteries are encased, being surrounded by the tumor, then it's generally unresectable or at least what we call locally advanced disease. Well put, how about borderline patients? How would you define, define borderline patients on EUS imaging? So um, just purely by size, I think three or four centimeter or larger, that generally are bad prognosticator for cancer resection, but they are not by themselves um, exclusive of a cure by cancer surgery. Then you have um, tumors that are abutting or uh, encompassing maybe part of the vessels that's not completely surrounding them. So these are patients that sometimes you can peel them off, so to speak, uh, from the tumor at the time of surgery. Uh, some surgeons consider invasion into the portal vein or involvement in the portal vein is not a uh, major disadvantage if they could repair the vessel um, uh, after we resected it. Uh, so those are kind of borderline cases. And, um, but most of the time, uh, the borderline cases are usually managed first by non-surgical means first. Sure, and I'm sure those definitions are largely dictated by the surgeon as well in each institution. Absolutely, yes. Yep. Next question, how has the introduction of fine needle biopsy changed your EUS sampling protocols? EUS biopsy. Um, so now you purely want to just make a diagnosis uh, FNA is good enough, and in fact, most centers still rely on uh, cytology from the FNA, uh, from the uh, EUS procedure that's good enough for the making diagnosis. But if you need to make a bigger uh, advance in terms of telling what kind of personalized treatments, such as using DNA analysis, things like that, um, you tend to need the histology, uh, although sometimes you can just get from cytological examination to do the evaluation, but you need a lot of tissue for that. So um, the, probably the most important things are two. One is um, the ability to um, interpret the DNA and stuff uh, for better personalized care. And the other one is that the pathologists have a much better confidence calling the cancer uh, the type of cancer, uh, so that um, it's easier for the surgeon and the oncologist to make decisions what to do. And you kind of answered my next question already. Yes. Um, but how exactly has this changed your interaction and conversations with the pathologist? Um, it used to be we um, want to ask the pathologist, well, is it cancer? And they usually hedge and say, well, highly suspicious, suspicious, um, cannot rule out other things. That's usually a, a lot of the, probably maybe 25% of cases like that. So it's kind of not so nice for the manager of the patient uh, like us. Uh, so now they are much more confident. They don't hatch anymore. They say either yes or no. Uh, so um, that's one. And two is that we tend to ask them for the um, the DNA analysis, um, can you do some profiling for us so that we can 
decide on maybe one type of onco uh, oncological treatment versus another type. Well put. As you know, there are ongoing discussions between GI and oncology about tailored or personalized me medicine, which you just mentioned. What are your thoughts on the future of personalized medicine and how that tissue might be used in the future? Well, so far it's slightly disappointing. A lot of these uh, general um, DNA panels are not that revealing as far as specifically telling you what to use. But I can give you a good example. We have a uh, um, orthopedic surgeon, young gentleman who collapsed in the operating room because of anemia. Turns out there was a large pancreatic cancer in the head of the pancreas invading the bile duct, not quite jaundice yet at that point, um, and nearly obstructing the duodenum and causing a lot of bleeding on an ongoing basis. So we thought that he probably had maybe three months to live and really looked bad. Especially a young person who presented early, you tend to think that the cancer very aggressive. So this was um, a few years ago now. He's still living, by the way. Uh, so at that time, we started to use these D uh, DNA analysis and stuff and uh, find out that the, the cancer profile was closer to lung cancer uh, tissue type, but he had no lung disease. We had CT scan of the chest. It was normal. So we went on to tailor a oncology treatment for the patient with chemotherapy, actually immunotherapy, uh, the tumor melted away. Now he still needed resection because for cure. And also the duodenum was obstructed. There was a stent in the duodenum. We needed to take it out. So uh, we resected the patient with a standard Whipple procedure. Uh, he's now back to work. Uh, unfortunately, he's working too hard uh, on call at five hospitals, which is what I would advise against. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, obviously he's doing really well. And this is almost five years later. That's an amazing story, Dr. Lowe, and uh, I'm, I'm really happy so to hear So this that. is like an example of a good personalized uh, type medicine. But unfortunately, these are not common, so uh, we'll have, we have a long way to go. But hopefully, we'll be able to tailor more in the future for patients like him. Great story. How about EUS fiducial markers? Uh, what is your opinion on the role of EUS, EUS fiducial markers and uh, the ability to target tumors with, say, like a cyber knife? Yeah, so um, the fiducial are basically mostly made of gold or something inert, uh, metal, so you can see on x-ray. Uh, the idea is to uh, isolate the borders of the tumor so that uh, the radiation oncologists can triangulate the, the treatment with radiation and uh, uh, have a focused high-energy beam to kill the cancer. Uh, so it tends to be used for locally advanced disease, uh, and um, uh, it's been working quite well. As you know, a lot of these uh, treatments are very individualized. It's very hard to know exactly in a group uh, population, how well they, they work for patients. But the generally, we have very, very good results for, for those. Now, the unfortunate thing with pancreatic cancer is you can treat a local disease, but you still need to worry about their metastatic potential. So uh, it has to be generally 
use along with other form of systemic treatment. And that's a great segue into my next question. How do you see the future of chemo radiation changing for patients? Obviously, there's been a shift towards more focus on neoadjuvant therapy now, too. You are actually correct. Uh, as you know, neoadjuvant therapy means that it's some kind of treatment before the surgery being done for curative resection. And so uh, it's sometimes in the form of pure chemotherapy or maybe a com combination of multiple chemotherapy agents or uh, uh, between chemo and radiation combined together before surgery. Um, and so it, in the past, they, the surgeons are so eager to treat things that are, quote, uh, resectable. So they would go straight to surgery. And now that we learn more and more that uh, that approach may not be so good because many of the patients, even though it looked like on EUS or on CT scan or everything, that it is early cancer, it should be curable. But it, realistically, many of them already have some local metastasis or something harboring around the, the basic cancer. So uh, it's really the neoadjuvant therapy seems to be on the rise, um, and although it's still a minority in mostly major academic centers or research centers where they're practicing. But I think that more and more when you talk to oncologists and, and, and good uh, cancer surgeons, they would say that uh, neoadjuvant is really the ones that they're favoring at this point. And it, it gives you the opportunity and your surgeons the opportunity here to see if the patient responds at the same time. But that's generally the, the, the um, argument. But then there will be those who argue that, well, you're losing that three months of a window where a good surgery can cure the problem. So there's still argument by those surgeons who favor surgery first or surgery only uh, approach. What are your thoughts on screening? I've been screened for pancreas cancer in full disclosure uh, several times. Uh, with Good my family you. history, okay, uh, and I've also had genetics testing, which, thank God, uh, was all clear. What are your thoughts on screening protocols, genetics testing, et cetera, for patients uh, that have family history or high risk? Well, so um, there are very well-defined situations for the high-risk cases that need to be, quote, screened. Um, they are used either like two or three first-degree relatives or those who have one of those roughly 10 different mutations, known mutations, like BRCA gene mutation, uh, that uh, along with one or two family members or one first degree relative uh, who have pancreatic cancer, then in, that, in those situations, those people need to be screened. Uh, the trouble is that we don't have a really good screening test. As you, you're well aware, the, the only screening test we have now is really um, EUS. And a not so great, uh, but commonly practiced um, screening test is MRI study with uh, IV contrast. Uh, they're not as good as the EUS, so that if you're doing a screening, your approach is to pick up something early. So sometimes one would worry that the MRI may be already too late. But then I can also tell you, on the contrary, I had one a uh, patient whose father at the age of 70 died of pancreatic cancer. She was only in her 40s and have even symptoms, abdominal symptoms that I did two USS on 
uh, over the span of three years, and uh, they were negative. And then eight months later, she developed abdominal pain, and at that point, the scans show cancer. Um, and so uh, we have screening tests, but it is not quite good enough yet, and also too invasive at this point. So I think that um, uh, uh, we're doing them, but uh, it's work in progress. I think that is uh, just lacking better solutions. So we're doing them in the way that we're doing them, and hopefully we'll be, have better screening tests, such as uh, blood and urine or saliva tests or something like that. Well, uh, thanks for all you're doing in this space, Dr. Lowe. Thanks. And last question I have for you. Um, actually, two questions left for you. Okay. What is your hope for the next 20 years in pancreas cancer diagnosis? Well, uh, as you know, the trajectory for pancreas cancer is not great. And it's projected to be a more and more common, although at a slow rate, but also more and more likely to be climbing the ladder to be one of the most serious cancer killer uh, of all the cancers. So that's not a good trend. So I'm hoping in next 20 years we can reverse the trend. And I'm pretty sure that we can do that. I think that a lot of smart people are doing a lot of good studies. So hopefully uh, over the next 20 years, what do we have? Maybe some uh, screening test, uh, some diagnostic tests that are non-invasive that allows you to screen out those people who are at high risk or have more tendency to develop cancer than you can do the more invasive studies on them. Uh, so um, I, there have been publications of urine tests that are pretty good, uh, maybe not great yet, uh, for uh, urine proteins that we can make diagnosis of. Uh, and of course, we all know about that young high school kid who uh, said that he had uh, developed some uh, uh, tests that could be cheap and uh, screened for pancreatic cancer that didn't turn out to be true. But hopefully, we will be able to to make those true announcements over the next few years. I hope so, too. Yes. And my final question, if there was just one golden nugget that you wanted to leave the audience with about diagnosis of pancreas cancer, what would it be? Okay. I think I actually have maybe a couple of messages for my colleagues who are doing uh, this type of work in interventional endoscopy. Great. Uh, one is don't be so pessimistic. I think over the next 20 years, like you said, uh, we are going to have dramatic advances in pancreatic cancer treatment and diagnosis. I'm almost sure that that's going to happen. Um, the other thing is we need to be more involved. Uh, as GI people, a lot of times we're way too isolated. We are only looking at one thing. We either diagnose them or or palliate them, or do something that the surgeon wants us to do. I think we need to take a more active role, uh, be more involved with the patient, take total care of these patients. Uh, it's not just a oncologist uh, domain or a surgeon's domain. We, uh, this is our disease, and we should take care of these patients in totality, along with those other caretakers. Well put, Dr. Lowe. Um, this has been an unbelievable uh, opportunity to sit down with you and get to know you better. And I just wanted to thank you for coming onto the podcast. Right. And, um, and most of all, just thank you for all you're doing to, to help uh, patients with this horrible disease and to diagnose it 
uh, more accurately, and it just advanced the space. So, Well, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity. And that's Endocast. Please follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit our virtual education platform, EduCare. That's E-D-U-C-A-R-E dot bostonscientific.com and choose gastroenterology. The site features over 180 resources, including physician-led educational videos, lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every patient or every case. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote nor encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases as individual results may vary. The law restricts devices to sell, buy, or on the order of a physician. Indications, contraindications, warnings, and instructions for use can be found on the product labeling supplied with each device. Products shown for information purposes only may not be approved for sale in certain countries. This material is not intended for use in France and by prescription only. Thank you.